Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 231 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with our own Stephanie Everett about client experience and client communication. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Arag, and Ruby Receptionists. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So, Aaron, it's been a while, but I think it's time to revisit our occasional segment. Hey, Aaron, what are you reading? So, hey, Aaron, what are you reading? Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. How are you? It has been a while. It's been like months and months since we checked in on I know, my, I was my so, book habits. I was so pleased with my cleverness when I created this segment, mm-hmm. and then I forgot about it after we did it a couple yes. times. <laughs> I mean, it's an occasionally recurring. It is, yeah. yeah. So, on this occasion... So, I feel like it is not worth updating you on every single book I have read since we last chatted, because some of them aren't worth mentioning, and they were a long time ago. And also, I don't remember when we actually last spoke about this. And so yeah. the further back I go, the You've more read likely 75 I'm... books since then. Yeah, but least. then yeah. I might also be redundant with what we talked about last <laughs> time. Like, I can't remember if I mentioned the Leonardo da Vinci book from Walter Isaacson or not. Oh, I read that too. That was really good. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Here are a few, though, that I have read since we last spoke. Cool. One would be The Alter Ego Effect by Todd Herman, who's a mm. friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, I think we may actually invite him onto the podcast sometime soon. Cool. It's an interesting business book around how high-performing people, he mostly coaches athletes, but he also coaches other kind of high-performing people, how many of them formally adopt an alter ego as one of the ways that they overcome things like imposter syndrome, where some of them will literally put on a different costume, change their glasses, Hmm. take a deep breath before they go on stage to assume the persona of their alter ego. And it's a fascinating concept. That's interesting. I was just listening to somebody reference Keanu Reeves, actually, who was talking about, you know, the difference between Keanu Reeves, who he actually is, and Keanu Reeves, who everybody thinks he is. And he's just like, you know, I'm the guy in the clown suit. You guys only get to know the clown suit, basically. Yeah. And I mean, it's a common concept among celebrities where especially once they're at a caliber where they have a publicist or whatever that the publicist manages the character of right. the public persona but that for sure is not who that mom is at home but it's also who I, like it's what i feel like when i put on a suit and go to court right like that's part of my costume that i'm adopting I, yeah I'd and like so that so todd's book the alter ego effect has some kind of analysis around why this is a powerful tool but also some tips around how to define who your alter ego is yeah. potentially like giving them a name or or giving yourself the costume. <laughs> um, it's fun. Awesome. I, I think if we can bring him on that you will have a fun time talking with him. What else um, are you reading? Another one I just read, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, has published a book called The Trillion Dollar Coach, mm. um, mm-hmm. which feels ultra ironic since a friend of ours, Taki Moore, has a book called The Million Dollar Coach. <laughs> and so not to be outdone, you can check in Amazon that there is a book, The Million Dollar Coach, and then another, The Trillion Dollar I'm Coach. working uh, on The Billion Dollar Coach, I yes, feel exactly. like I should tell you right now. <laughs> yes, so it's we're going to be a big hole in the marketplace. A mid-range audience. So The Trillion <laughs> Dollar Coach is a biography 
and kind of analysis of the former executive coach, Bill Campbell, who started as a college football coach and then Hmm. became a tech CEO in Silicon Valley and then became an advisor to Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and the founders of Google and Sheryl Sandberg. And so he is widely credited with having kind of added more than a trillion dollars in business value to Silicon Valley startups. So it's both his story and a bunch of his methodology from people he coached. Third one... I read The Mastermind, which you and I both heard an excerpt featured on our favorite podcast, Reply All. Oh, yeah, yeah. So The Mastermind is a kind of true crime story about a man named Paul LaRue, who is one of the largest online pharmaceutical drug dealers turned arms sales and all sorts of nefarious murders and things. And so this is a story about kind of a dot-com crime syndicate, and it's fascinating. Fascinatingly, it also large parts of the plot take place in Minnesota and include references to Minnesota criminal yeah. defense lawyers who you and I personally know, which <laughs> felt extra interesting for this billion-dollar global okay, conspiracy. I totally pick that up. I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast, but my wife Kelly and I recently invested in our lawyerist friend Patrick Pallas's winery, and so we are partners <laughs> in his winery, and so I just read a book book called A Perfect Score about how to run a great winery. And it's a little biography of uh, a Napa Valley couple and how they started a winery and what that looks like. And it was a fun little biography. Do you have board meetings now with Patrick? Not yet. No? Okay. Probably need to get on that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, I think, obviously, recently read uh, Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. We had him on the podcast, had him as part of our Insider Book Club, and that was a great book that I enjoyed Have you been using his Jedi mind tricks? Uh, I have not yet perfected my late night radio DJ voice. I haven't haven't even tried that. I think I have started to try to apply some of his linguistic tricks in conversations with people, not from any strategic perspective. I I like his Jedi mind tricks. The mirroring one I use on my kids a lot. And with my younger daughter, it's actually just like pulling the pin on a hand grenade because like in that it triggers her. Yeah, because, you know, the trick is, especially when you're mirroring as a way of sort of objecting, getting them to try and justify themselves like a seven year old instant defensiveness when she's asked to defend herself. And so it's like, boom. I mean, this is (laughs) this is one of the things I think is fascinating about some of these tricks is on our team at Lawyerist. There was probably an extended six month period of time where all of us had spent a bunch of time thinking around how improv tools and improvisational Mm. communication tools are a really useful tool for business communication because they can keep people loose and open-minded and things. But it led to almost all of our meetings, including people going, yes, and, and, and then (laughs) always meaning no. Which now makes us laugh every time it happens. We were all trained. To say yes and, but that always meant no. I will say the uh, the it seems like construction had some really dramatic impacts on my relationships. Yeah. Over like the, when you say this, it makes me feel that. That's another hand grenade. But the it seems like has been fucking magic. I love that yep. one. Yeah. I think that will be a book that I reread and highlight and yeah. take notes from. Mm-hmm. Currently reading The Making of a Manager by Julie Joe, which is a book on how to manage other people. Yeah. And it's been interesting. I have learned some, but I, it has also been a really useful framework. She's got a framework for how to think about being a good manager. And mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. And then for fun, my father-in-law for my birthday, 
gave me a bunch of first editions of the first books of a bunch of the pop thriller novel people. Oh, cool. Um, And so I am reading like a hardcover first edition of Brad Thor's first book, even though all the rest of his books, they're like pharmacy. Supermarket reading. Supermarket paperbacks. Check out lanes. And then I, on Audible, I'm listening to In Cold Blood, which I had never read or listened to before. I'm reading uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography in preparation for my South Africa trip next, well, it'll be in a couple of weeks when this podcast airs it's very thick and kind of a little bit of personal propaganda but he also really compelling and good yeah. yeah i mean it's just what a freaking life that guy so that's the main hey thing sam reading. yeah what else are you reading uh and i'm preparing for a couple of future podcasts with audiobooks john ruland's book is one i'm reading giftology. and i'm reading giftology yep thanks and i'm reading farsighted in hopes of getting the author whose name is escaping johnson. me stephen johnson yep <laughs> and that, that I, that's a fascinating book about the way we think about things and kind of based on some of the scientific research on it. And then I'm also reading, is it Michael Dick is the name of the author? Matthew, who, Matthew Dick, who, who writes about um, storytelling, and he'll also be on the podcast. You were not prepared. I was for not hey, prepared for Hey all. Sam, what yeah. you reading? No, not even a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I got a few audiobooks going and Mandela's autobiography. Yeah. Because so, mm-hmm. apparently I'm also reading several things. Shit, if I turn the days, tables yeah. on you and do a Hey Sam, what you reading, you better be prepared. <laughs> That is not an official occasional segment. (laughs) So now that we're all caught up on reading material and you have like a three page list of things to read, let's have my conversation with Stephanie, which I think you'll really enjoy. Here we go. Hey, everyone. It's Stephanie Everett, and I am the Vice President of Community Success here at Lawyerist. And what does that mean? I don't know, but it's funny to hear your title. We never really use titles. No, it's a new thing. <laughs> no, I don't even like saying it. Stephanie is in charge of the lab. And I think when we last had you on the podcast, we were either had just launched or were about to launch version 2.0 of the lab. And maybe you could tell us more about now that we're like six months in or three months into that. How's it going and how does it feel to be on version 2.0. It's awesome. That's my favorite word. <laughs> it's going really well. We've learned so much. And I think that's what one of the cool things that we do with our business and that we try to teach lawyers to do is you don't have to get it right the first time. Yeah. That you can keep improving and learning and testing. And, you know, one day we'll be on 3.0 because we're still learning. But there's such a big difference between where we started and where we are now and the results that we're seeing with our lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so that's great. We were recently traveling a bit together and I was hearing you talk about it with other people. And we've been talking recently about some of your calls with people and some of the questions they have about lab. And one of my favorites is kind of around, you know, what are you going to do for me? And we talk about that pretty differently and really have embedded in our brains a different approach to how we think about that. What are we actually trying to do here? Yeah. So I think one of the things that makes it so hard when I'm talking to people about lab is that it is so individualized in that we really stop and say, what is it that you want to get out of your life? Mm -hmm. And then what does that mean as it translates to your business? Because I'm a big believer that your business should exist to serve you, not the other way around, right? You hear me say that a lot because I think people get trapped by their business sometimes. And we're trying to break people out and and refocus them. But what makes it hard is that other programs, I think they just talk about join us and you're going to increase revenues by 100% (laughs) or 500% or whatever that means. And And it would be so easy. Like we could just promise six figures to everybody or 10 figures or a billion figures to everybody. I know we could. Yeah. 
that's just not very interesting to me. <laughs> no, and, and there's not a whole lot of room for, I want to travel and be a digital nomad and still have a law practice. Exactly. And so, yeah, so that's the trick, right? Is if you do these things and you improve your business and you start really focusing on your business, chances are you are going to make more money or maybe you make more profit. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean maybe, but some people come into lab and say, I make a fine living. I just would like this to be less stressful. I'd like to take a vacation. I'd like to spend more time with my family. And those are super valuable things too. Which doesn't mean we can't like help people become millionaires, I guess. But I feel like maybe one of the things that turns me off about the like make a million bucks approach to or make whatever approach is that like my goal in life is not to get rich. Like there is an amount of money that is enough and I want to make that and I want to work as little as possible doing things I hate and as much as possible doing things I like and maximize my time spent with friends and family. And after I'm at enough, I don't care about working more to make more. So I think that is probably true for a lot of listeners because so many solos and small firms are in it for the balance that they can get out of it. So. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's why a lot of folks tell me that they started their own practice in the first place is they had this idea that it was going to create freedom or balance or harmony. I know we don't like to use that work-life balance word around here too much because it's silly. And then you get into it and you take on so much. Your role just, you take on all these hats and next thing you know, you're the IT guy and you're the CFO and you're the collections department. And you're, right. <laughs> you're the everything and it's overwhelming and it's the exact opposite feeling of what you thought you would get by opening your own practice. Yeah. And that's no fun. So we do have a problem that we're working on in lab. Lab 2.0 is not perfect. Version 2.1 will contain a solution to this problem, which is lawyers feel like they shouldn't prioritize working on their business. And uh, one of the things that you've been working on is trying to figure out, like, how do we how do we help lawyers commit to that? And I'll let you take it away because you had an interesting call with other coaches that kind of leads into the subject of today's podcast, which is around communications and experiences and with clients. Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, I myself am in a coaching program because I believe mm -hmm. in what I do so much that I also benefit from being in a community. In this case, it happens to be like coach the coaches. So the other people that I'm working with are coaches and consultants, but for dentists and hair salons. And <laughs> yes, that, yep. that's a thing. Totally. <laughs> and I love it. I get so much out of it. And it just really reinforces what we're doing with lab and reminds me how valuable it is to have a community of people who are doing the things you're doing and struggling with the things you're doing. We bounce ideas off each other. And so one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit lately is lawyers are busy by nature. We know that. And trials happen and big deals happen. And so it's really easy for them when they hit those times of busyness to, re, you know, like you just said, unprioritize their business, unprioritize what they're doing with lab and it kind of sits for a while. And if it sits long enough, it's easy for them to just shut it all together mm -hmm. and say, never mind, I'm out. I understand it. And it's a strange mindset because like, you have to take care of your business too. Not because it's a frivolous thing or because I'm advocating for that as a person who believes in business. You have to take care of your business because if you don't, it falls apart. Right. And we're trying very much to structure lab, not as this additional thing you need to do, but as a way that you approach and work on your business. Yeah. So if we're doing it right, it shouldn't take any additional or much additional time out of your life. It's just, this is how I am going to approach and work on my business. So I've had this problem where people just want to quit. It's like when the going gets tough, they, they quit, mm -hmm. right? And they don't recommit or double down on working on their business. And so I went to my group and I said, what are you guys doing to help people, you know, make that commitment and see that this is important and we want to elevate it and we want to commit to it. And I think I even said, 
we are lawyers. We work with lawyers. I don't need to over-contract this. Yeah. And the response I got from a bunch of non-lawyers was, you need eight-page <laughs> contracts with 50,000 words, and that's your gun, and that's your, you know, I don't even know what. It was kind of silly. I mean, as someone who has represented businesses, were you just like, oh. Right? I was like, oh, that's kind of the opposite of even what we're training our lawyers to do. Right. So it was just such a funny response to get from a bunch of non-lawyers. Like, well, you just obviously, if you had an eight-page contract, then people would be more committed. And that's just false. What I'm not sure about <laughs> is like, do they think that makes it like a good contract? Are they aware of the impression they're making with it, right? When you slap a pile of contract on the table you're saying something. And that's kind of the point of our podcast today is, you know, how to think intelligently about what you're communicating with that contract. Like part of it is like, this is onerous and there's a ton of small print that you're going to be, you know, caught into and caught up in. And are they doing that deliberately as a way of like conveying the seriousness of what they're doing? Or do they think they just need that? Because the retainer agreement, for example, is the lawyer's equivalent of that thing. And if it's a nine page, 10 page contract of 10 point font that nobody reads, what you're conveying is you're upholding lawyer stereotypes and you're you know trapping people with small print or are you taking advantage of that opportunity to create the client experience you want people to have and unfortunately in this case my guess is they probably haven't been intentional about it but they see it in their mind they have this you know ironclad contract that if someone tries to break they can they can right. sue them on they can enforce right they're thinking Feels of it like the longer it is the harder it is to be ironclad anyway but yeah no i know but but it was just interesting because as you and i were talking about this it really made us think about the onboarding process and we were like what kind of impression are we making with our clients mm -hmm. because we you know i think the onboarding process is the most important time in our client relationship there's so much important. And, and most attorneys, by the way, gloss over this. It just becomes very rote. Right. And here are things. One of my favorite clauses is like, this comes up a lot with testimonials. And lawyers are like, you know, how do I make sure that it's okay for me to use things my clients say you know, on my website? And the answer is often, well, I just stick that clause in my retainer agreement that nobody reads, right? Like, and the reality is, do you have the contractual right to use that quote? Yes. Is your client going to feel like they got trapped by small print if they don't feel good about it? Yes. Like you've done nothing. You've achieved nothing by putting it in the small print of your contract. And it's interesting because if in all of your marketing content, which is how the client has gotten to know you up to this point, you're doing what we suggest and you're writing it in their voice and thinking about their problems and you're not sounding like a lawyer, but you're mm -hmm. sounding like a real person. What a shift it must be that they now have agreed to hire you and their first official thing from you is this super long retainer agreement. It's probably grown over time because my guess is just like you just mentioned, anytime something bad <laughs> happened in, in your there. practice, you're like, oh, let's add that paragraph to the engagement And the more layer. stuff you put in there, the more things you're like, no, that needs to be in capital letters. Nope, that needs to be bold-faced and underlined. Like, yeah, <laughs> that'll be highlighted. Right, and then, so not only are you conveying now this entirely new thing, but... To your, are the clients reading it? Do they have any idea what's going on? And you're missing the point. The point is to educate our clients, mm -hmm. to set the expectations. And to communicate. Yeah, and to, and to teach. Yeah. This is your time when you're the teacher. You're teaching them, this is how you call me. You're teaching them, this is how you're going to receive bills and how you pay bills. And this is how our transaction's going to work. 
But then also, here's how the lawyering process is going to work. This is what to expect from me and my team, and this is what we're going to promise you. So I think this is why we got excited about it, because yeah. it was like, oh, we need to rethink this process of, that we do. Our friend David Colarusso just posted a comic to Twitter that is analogous in the world of teaching. I think this will resonate with everyone. And it's like, you know, what's the policy on late homework? It's in the syllabus. You know, what's the reading for next week? It's in the syllabus. And as anyone who's gone to get an advanced degree knows, like by the time you're in law school, the syllabuses are, or syllabi, I'm not quite sure about that one, are like 19 pages. And they're in the nature of a contract. It's a trap. Like as we were talking, it occurred to me, like when you put an eight-paid contract on the table, what you've done is you've laid a trap. That's what it feels like to see a document and have that now sign this thing. It's a trap. You're not communicating anything other than, ha ha, I'm going to get you, sucker. And depending on who your clients are, are they going to read it? Can they, you know, will they understand it? We're not, we're not helping them. And mm -hmm. if, if the goal is to have your clients pay you or for the clients to give you a testimonial at the end of the case, then putting that paragraph in your engagement letter is the wrong way to achieve that right. goal. We're going to take a break in a moment, but I want to tee this up with one of the things we know from Clio in particular with their surveying of client expectations is that clients want choices about how to communicate. And one of the best places to have that conversation is right up front at the beginning of your client relationship when you have that retainer agreement in front of you and you can give the client some choices about how they want to communicate. And so I want to take that and run with it after the break. We'll be right back. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your preferred area of law without spending any time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. When you become a provider on ARAG's network, you'll consult with and represent clients on various legal issues from writing a will to dealing with traffic tickets, bankruptcy, or divorce. ARAG does the rest. They'll make it easy for clients to connect with you and even share client feedback so you can keep growing your business. Best of all, ARAG pays you directly and there are absolutely zero out-of-pocket fees to join the network. So what are you waiting for? Visit araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to learn more about the client growth opportunities in your area. Just enter your zip code and area of law to see the number of ARAG members near you. It all adds up to more potential clients and more opportunities to make money for your firm. Expand your client base right now. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something comes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com lawyerist to get started. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. 
Okay, we're back. So I left us a few minutes ago thinking about giving your client choices about how they want to communicate. And how might we take what we've been talking about with using the retainer agreement as an excuse to start setting expectations and about how to communicate and then actually give your client choices within that communication? Yeah, so as you were teeing that up, I had this image. What if we had pictures and we had <laughs> icons of a phone mm -hmm. or an email, like a computer, and it became a check the box mm -hmm. and it was a conversation. So I'm sitting with my client on the front end doing the onboarding and it doesn't have to be the attorney. It could be a paralegal or another person in your right. office that then walks them through this thing. And maybe there's even just pictures. Then it's mm -hmm. like, which picture would you like and circle it? And yeah. wouldn't that be interesting? Well, and, and like, what if your retainer agreement was more an outline for a discussion that you have with every client? You know, not here's what this clause says. Here's what this clause says. Here's, but an actual like, here are discussions we need to have. And so your retainer agreement is in the nature of a checklist of clauses. You can have your legal jargon there, but it's, you you know, first we're going to talk about how we're going to communicate with each other. And I'm going to ask you for some preferences. And next we're going to talk about my document destruction policy and how I'm going to make sure that you have files at the end of this representation and how I'm going to share files with you during the representation. I need to make sure that you understand what my security policy is so that you know how I'm taking care of the information you share with me. Here are the terms of ending the relationship. If you get really unhappy with me in 30 days, Here's how that works out. Yeah. Here's how we get paid. If we use a client portal, I'm going to mm -hmm. show you how to log on right now, but I'm also going to send you a video tutorial that you can reference when you forget yeah. three months from now and you can't get in. I'm also going to suggest that along the lines of what you said, engaging a graphic designer in the process is a really good idea. Right? Yeah. This is the single most important document in your practice. Making sure that it's not 10 point times New Roman or even in times New Roman is a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Making it readable with lots of white space. And yeah. I was joking that like, if you're going to have an eight page retainer agreement, what if it only had one statement on each page? That would be kind of a funny way to flip that whole paradigm on its head. So Yeah, and you know, we just did a lab workshop a couple of weeks ago about using infographics mm -hmm. in our practice and in our marketing materials because it's such an interesting way to convey really complicated information differently. And I think if you're sitting here listening to this, be intentional and actually put thought around what it is you're trying to communicate and then how might you best communicate those ideas. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is in pictures. Or your new favorite, which is video. Yes. And not even that new, actually, no. but video can be a good tool. And I, I'm a a little hesitant on this one because I don't think most lawyers understand how to make a good video. But if you have good lighting and you put your earbuds on so that you have decent audio, it can work really well. And you've given some examples of how and when to use video. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting your engagement letter is a video, although maybe, I don't yeah, know. Could be. Or yeah. maybe you introduce it with one. Yeah. But I think it's just interesting because you and I were talking about how do we communicate with our clients? And obviously the retainer agreement came up as a great first example. But then as the relationship continues, how are you constantly conveying information and what are you saying? And mm -hmm. are you being client-centered and thoughtful in that. I was telling you a little bit ago, I had a lab coaching call recently with an attorney and she's just going through some emotional decisions right now mm -hmm. that are related to her business. And it's perfectly fair to be emotional about, mm -hmm. right? Like she's not wrong to feel this pressure that she feels. And so it got a little emotional on our call. And the next day I wanted to send her a message and just let her know I was thinking about her. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Hmm, that's really hard in email, right? And so instead, I popped open my video app that I use and I recorded a message to her 
and I struggled in, in the video. Like I, it wasn't a perfectly great video. Instead, I was, I was very thoughtful and intentional by pausing and saying, I don't, I don't have an answer for you mm-hmm. and I don't know what to say. I can't solve this for you, but I'm here and I want to help if I can. And I know you're strong. I know the decision is right there in front of you and, and you're very close and being able for her to see my face and see that I was struggling for the words and seeing that, like, this is tough. This is pretty hard to convey empathy in text. As soon as she opened it, I got an immediate response that was like, that was powerful. Thank you. And it just occurred to me as I was kind of reflecting on it that our job as lawyers obviously is to advocate for our clients. But a lot of times what we really are is we're that empathetic voice that they need to hear. We're the counselors. We're the... Well, not the guy who we got an email from the other day who just cares about whether his clients can pay him. But he's not our people. No. But for for (laughs) many of the people listening, they care and they talk enough. I bet if I went to even that guy's website, Mm -hmm. he probably says... We really care, Probably, right? Like yeah. that's a favorite tagline right, right now. Not just that we care, we really care. But not many lawyers make that real. Right. Yeah. So how do you make that real that you really care? Do you really care if every communication is a, you know, CYA 10 page letter with well, all of say, the so disclaimers? In a, in a podcast where we are focused on client communication, that is the first time the word letters has appeared. Like we haven't talked about letters, oh, yeah. which, are, which is, that is the default mode of communication. And I wanted to, as you were thinking, as we were on video and I was like, oh shit, we should probably talk about letters just a little bit. Like letters are very formal. Yeah. That it is a way of conveying demands and offers and negotiations. And it is a terrible way in part because nobody even opens letters anymore, but it's also a terrible way to convey bad news. <laughs> right. Yes. Don't do that. I mean, to your clients yeah. initially. But also phone calls are a terrible way to convey bad news because it puts your client on the spot when they might want to sit with their bad news for a little while. Yeah. You know, like I think in person might be better because you can convey more empathy, but also like maybe a video is a better way to convey bad news. And maybe maybe phone is fine for some people, but like the Clio study actually broke down, like how do you want to get bad news? And different people have different ideas about how they will want to receive that. Yeah, there's so much there and there's a lot of science even about how to deliver mm-hmm. bad news. So I feel like that could be the topic of a whole <laughs> other podcast. We'll but... go find a neurologist on bad news, I think. Yeah. No, there is. There is there one totally who, are, yeah. who's been teaching lawyers specifically. This is how you deliver bad news. We should do that Um, podcast. Yeah, because one of the takeaways from her book that I'll just share quickly is that lawyers think logically. Mm -hmm. So in our mind, we're like, so we filed a motion for summary judgment. The purpose of that is this. It contained four arguments. Our first argument was this. Our second argument was this. They argued this and the judge agreed and we lost. Mm -hmm. And so we've like, it's almost like we've walked them off a cliff where the client's just like, what? What just happened? Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of say up front, I've got some bad news to deliver, but it's not all bad, but there are some hits we just took. Now I can, okay, I'm framed and I know that you're about to tell me bad news and now I can listen to all the logical pieces but lawyers, we kind of, that's just not how our brains always think. And I can imagine even, you know, separating that conversation out over several days. Like we lost and that fucking sucks. And there are things that we can do when you're ready. I'll talk to you about those things. But if you need to sit with this awful news, like if you need to sit with the fact that you're only going to have 25% time with your kids for the rest of your life, if you need to, you know, right. take a day with that, that's okay. Then we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about how we're going to deal with that. Yeah. Like some acknowledgement that some news sucks and you might just need to process it would be a different thing. Yeah, you know, I've made that mistake. I I remember I had somewhat of a semi-famous client once, so I won't say who, but um, (laughs) we lost. We had been winning. No, but... Um, 
he probably wouldn't even think it was. That my wife long. had a my wife had an interesting interaction with Fabio once, and so for some reason that's what comes up. <laughs> it was a musician that I really liked when I was a teenager. So mm-hmm. we lost and on an issue, and I remembered giving her like this baseball analogy where mm-hmm. I was like, you know, like. We didn't hit a home run, but we're, we're, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was like, you know, we're not out. Like the game's not over because I knew that the next pieces were coming. And and I remember her saying like, I'm a smart woman, Stephanie, shut up with these professional sports (laughs) analogies or something. And I just felt so dumb because also like she was a little bit of my idol when I was a teenager. So I was like, oh. You're fangirling a little bit and trying to deliver bad news. Right. I was like, this is horrible. But we did ultimately prevail and she apologized later she was like you know i that was mean and i'm sorry and i was like yeah you hurt me a little bit i couldn't listen to your (laughs) cds for a while (laughs) but now i'm back that's funny but it's a good lesson and like how we've talked to our clients i was gonna wrap this up with a metaphor but it's not a sports metaphor okay i think i've probably mentioned this before on the podcast or or maybe not i don't know but one of my goals was to be an appellate lawyer and so i sat down with kind of the one of the leading appellate lawyers in our state who later became a Supreme Court justice until he got or Minnesota Supreme Court justice until he got bored with it. But we sat down and he was giving me advice and he was saying, you know, one of the things that I think separates some of the best appellate lawyers from the rest is that the best appellate lawyers view everything in the brief as an opportunity to persuade. Like your table of contents should be persuasive. Your table of authorities should be persuasive. Your headings should be persuasive. And even if the judge never reads them, the subconscious effect of them will be even more effective than if they actually are, you know, reading them as if they're part of the brief. But obviously judges read pretty much everything if they can. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Like, of course, persuade with everything, persuade with your footnotes. Don't miss an opportunity to be persuasive. I love, I think it's um, Cardozo's opinions and Learned Hand's opinions are so effective because by the end of the statement of facts, you already know how the case comes out. And you should persuade with your statement of facts. That is your, an opportunity to tell a story in a way that makes your case for you. The way that I think applies here too is don't miss an opportunity to take advantage of communications with your clients and to create the kind of experience you want them to have. You know, from the retainer is many lawyers just treat that as sign this and we'll move on. That's a missed opportunity, right? Your retainer is one of your first and best opportunities to set expectations and create the client experience that you want people to have with your firm. And so don't miss any of those opportunities throughout the representation. Yeah, I love that. Well, then we can end. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.